I'm Sasha Sagan, and this is Strange Customs. Ah, these creatures. I've really come to love their strangeness. Their peculiarity is just so particular to them. There are so many things they must do for survival, individual survival and the survival of their species. And then there is everything else. These things they do for some other reason. A whole category is just things they make to ignite their nervous center through new and unexpected stimuli for just one of their senses. It's part of an even larger category where other senses are also involved, but the category is undefinable even to them and yet crucial to their experience. They make things for each other, for themselves, that help them begin to grasp the enormous perplexing question at the core of their existence. And once they sent some of these elements of their identity out into the universe, hoping that just maybe someone like us might come upon them and know that the creatures had once existed on the third planet out from a yellow star on the outskirts of a galaxy they called the Milky Way. This is different. I'm in a room with you in person, Dario. Mm -hmm. Today, I am in Chicago at the Block Museum talking to artist Dario Robleto. For our listeners, we just came from the most astonishing, beautiful exhibition at the Block Museum at Northwestern University here in Chicago. And I'm so lucky to have just been able to go through this exhibition with you while you explain the nuance and detail of all these astonishing, beautiful things. The first thing that I'm so keenly aware of is you are a visual artist, and so much of this work is about sound. Mm. Um, can you just give our listeners an overview of what you just took me around to see and this 10 years of work that have culminated in this beautiful exhibition? Listeners will quickly realize my, my personal excitement to speak to you in particular uh, because the, the show is a love letter to the Golden Record, in particular a recording that Andrea and your, your mother made in uh, 1977. So in the late 70s, NASA launched Voyagers 1 and 2, the first probe to explore the outer planets. Because they knew that it would one day exit the solar system, a really rare phenomenon, only five human-made objects have so far obtained that distinction, they had the foresight to put a message on board, just in case anything found it. And it's 1977, so it's the long-playing LP record. It's literally made of gold. In the Grooves is an attempt to summarize the complexity and diversity of our planet, both in its animal life and human life and our technology. There are images and sounds of the natural world. There's music. There's, there are languages. And it is potentially the final document of our planet. It's the most ambitious archival project humans have ever attempted. Its stated goal was one billion years, but it is a gesture of remembrance about what we were in case anything ever finds it. My encounter with it when I was a young boy really transformed me. I mean, so much so that Literally four decades later, I'm still thinking about it. Mm. Not only am I still thinking about it, I'm, I'm making art shows in, in response to it. So it had a profound effect on me. My goal with the show was to offer a gift back through the language of art and the, the tools of art to what I feel is a gift from your mother in the recording that she made of her 
EEG and her EKG that was one of the many beautiful things placed on the golden record. And it it now is, you know, the representation of not just a physiological recording of the body, but specifically her thinking. Yeah. It's a thinking human. And so what does she think about? That's That becomes even more interesting and important in the context of potentially the final document of one's planet. And of the many things she thought about, it's funny telling you a story you know so well. But no, but I, this is great. This is <laughs> yes. I love I love hearing it from your perspective. And I just want to know, like, when you first read about it or first heard about it, like, what it was that was so uh, remarkable to you. Well, it was it was a, a complete misinterpretation of it that captivated me. By complete coincidence, I stayed homesick from school one day. I was in second grade. The Voyager was at that time just rapidly approaching uh, Jupiter. And so the mission was back in the popular consciousness because it was getting a lot of press coverage. And I saw a program on TV that mentioned that NASA was opening up a 1-800 number for the public to call in and hear what they were calling sounds of space. And in my young boy mind, also feeling very ill, I completely misunderstood and assumed that they meant NASA had made contact with aliens <gasps> and that we could and that we could call in a one eight hundred number and hear this the first signal. <gasps> so in my enthusiasm, <laughs> uh, I instead called my mother right away and asked her if I had permission to call the oh, number. <laughs> oh, what a good, well-behaved child. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, she said no. <laughs> and so she said no because I'm sure it confused her deeply, whatever I was trying to explain to her. Yes. You know, we yes. found aliens. Can I call the number? Yes. Uh, I waited she was for like, you, you sound feverish. Yes. I'll be right home. <laughs> yes. So I, I waited for her to get home. And uh, I met her at the back door. I, I didn't let her take more than one step in before I put the phone in her hand. And I said, make the call. <gasps> and uh, she called it for me. When somebody called in, it wasn't as if they got some preface mm. that told you what you were listening to. Instead, when I call, it turns out that it's your mom's recording playing, which is, if anyone's heard it, it just sounds like static. So I cannot tell you how disappointed I was oh. <laughs> to hear this recording after assuming it would you know, be legible as, yeah. as alien talk. And it mystified me. What in the world was this recording? It wasn't until 1991 that the contents of the Golden Record was finally released to the public on CD. Mm. That entry for your mother's recording simply says life signs, which yeah. explained none of the mystery to me. Yeah. It wasn't until more decades passed before your your mom finally, you know, publicly spoke about the fact that she was specifically thinking about falling in love with your father. As I must have suspected as a little boy, there was more to the story, and it turns out to be the most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my life. And now, I want to honor it. And the way I've chosen to do that is through the show and, and through my art. And the basic question is, what does one gift to the only woman whose heart and mind have left the solar system? And not just any heart and mind, but one specifically thinking about falling in love as an important feature of our species that should be remembered. The show is my humble, tentative answer to this question. Ah, oh, it's so moving and it's so beautiful and just astonishing. When you start working on something, we were sort of talking about this before, of when does it begin? When do you start working on something? But how do you describe it? Do you have rituals? Do you have customs around the way you create things? How do you start making things? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's funny, as much as I reflect on my life as an artist, there's that part that I still don't know. Don't know sometimes. Like the mystery of that recording. Why did I not let it go? My point is there's some level that's still unknown to me, but 
there is a rigorous system that has fallen into place. And like I have a motto in my studio, which is, <clears throat> what do I need to do to earn the respect of this material? And until I can answer that question, I won't move forward. And sometimes that means, you know, taking two years to find uh, 42 inner ear bones of a now extinct well. <laughs> or, yes. or, uh, oh, wow. and the, the time it takes to do that, or uh, relearning Victorian mourning traditions, you know, from centuries past that is not common knowledge or has generally been passed down. So that I can learn not only a new technique of creation, but because I'm often dealing with very personal subject matter yeah. and even materials, sometimes like hair is you know literally the remnants of a person. Uh, it adds an extra layer of earning it. That what what is the, the what are these steps I need to take to honor this correctly? In this case, you know the shows of so much about hearts. And literally, yeah. people have left their hearts behind. Yeah. Uh, and I take that very serious. I can spend years and years learning something before I actually start making the object. Right. <laughs> so you mentioned the idea of the heart, which is at the heart of the show, and like this paradox or this tension between the heart as this medical, physical, scientific organ, but also as our sort of shorthand for all of our emotions and all of our feelings. How did that come to be the central theme mm -hmm. of all these years of work? Your mother's recording is important because it is her EEG and EKG, a modern medical tool of recording our, our hearts and our, our brains. But I also had a, a very personal uh, transformative moment where I happened to be with my grandmother as she passed away, mm. you know, one of those things, nobody knows the yeah. timing of such events. And uh, for reasons I'll never fully understand, I instinctually put my hand on her chest, not knowing she was just a few <gasps> moments from her final breath. And at this point, she was so frail that her heart was beating so fast and it, it felt as if it was right in my palm. And, and then the final beat came, and I didn't know it was going to be the final, and I just kept waiting, assuming there'd be another one. And it didn't come. And I, but I didn't remove my hand, and I felt, I felt so many things, obviously, but in that moment, I realized this woman I love so much who had given so much of her life to me that I felt that I hadn't... I didn't know the nature of one's heart in its final moments. And it's silly because who does know that? But in those moments of grief, you, you suddenly are hard on yourself in some new way. Like, what yeah. else could you have done? Yeah. I remember vividly thinking, I promise you I will do everything in my power to understand the nature of our hearts. Oh, my God. And I said it almost that clearly, in articulating it in, into my, to myself. I don't know where that came from. And How long ago was that? It's been over a decade now, oh but um, from that moment forward, merged with your mother's recording, these two stories have intersected to produce all of this work because I, I feel that the way to honor my, my grandmother's final heartbeat is to honor and ponder the only heart at the edge of the solar system. And that these two things go hand in hand. Just as your mother made a radical move, I think, into asking what do we expect from our hearts and our brains, of course, but what do we expect it to represent about us that's essential and core? Love being one of those, some interaction in the body between the brain and the rest of the body, but, but that she honored that on the record as far as something that should is was worthy of remembering through time a, a reaching a type of you know life after death in a sense because of the long-term trajectory of the record and so meditating on that recording has allowed me to answer some of those questions about my grandmother about what do we owe to the memory of each other's hearts like what is the moral obligation if given such a moment like feeling your loved one's final heartbeat, what do you owe them moving forward? 
I'm lucky that I have found a medium and a language to discuss that, which is art. Others use religion, others use philosophy. My language is art, and I, I'm still working on it, of course, but I do believe art can answer such questions, or at least illuminate them in new ways. What a privilege to be able to hear you describe each object as we went around this gallery. But can you give a few examples of what the objects are in this room and how you came to create them and how they capture something that could not be captured in any other way? So the show is sculpture, printmaking. There are two films. They're multi-mediums. On purpose, I'm trying to explore various sensory pathways to information. For example, um, an important aspect of the show that's related to the framing I just gave about your mother's recording was, could I find the first heart that was ever recorded in history? It's sort of a wild question. Well, how in the world do you do that? And what do you mean by recording uh, is a big question. Uh, in this sense for the show, I mean the first time humanity and a, and a particular human uh, was able to image the beating of their heart and their pulse outside of their body in the language of a waveform uh, or the pulse wave. We all know what that image is. But as I've explored in the show, this is rather recent discovery, and it should be acknowledged as a milestone in science, but I also argue it's a milestone in poetry. Art is good at moments like this because art allows me to tell that story in a way that science would not allow or would not find relevant to the science. To do it justice, I think you have to bring other lenses to the table, and art is one of them. The breakthrough comes in the mid-19th century as far as the pulse wave, and the milestone is this new leap into sensitivity. I call it the Hubble telescope moment for the heart, uh, which was a new threshold of resolution into our bodies. We knew more about Jupiter and its moons in the mid-19th century than we did the organ beating a few inches under our chest because we couldn't image it. We couldn't get there. And the milestone in sensitivity that this German scientist uh, innovated was using two materials that were at his time two of the most sensitive materials he could find. <laughs> Rather than, you know, grinding glass with zero variation to, to send into orbit a million miles away, he was left with a single human hair and soot from a candle flame. So his innovation was to use his own hair as a stylus, which he rigged to a tube of compressed air, and every time his heartbeat or his pulse moved, it would make his own hair vibrate in unison. And then he used a piece of soot-covered paper from it with a candle, uh, rigged it on a cylinder that's turning at a regular uh, rhythm, and he carved his own hair. Uh, he carved his heartbeat into the soot with his own hair mm. as a waveform. And it, it's I've been able to find the image and, and understand the story. You could say this is the birth of cardiology. But art allows me to acknowledge the poetic innovations, especially because it was the heart. It allows me to interpret what he did in this other way, which is, what does it mean to become a more sensitive being, both in a poetic and a scientific sense? At some level, we're both trying to increase the sensitivity of our observations. This scientific and emotional thing, the inward and outward. I mean, the tension in your show and in your work in general between the way that we are like grappling to get some sense of ourselves and also some sense of our place. I do feel that one of my talents as an artist is connecting dots in unexpected mm, ways. Yes. You know, I love working with scientists and I always argue if, you know, if we put all the same data on the table, we're going to find a little different pathway through it. And I think they're equally valid and interesting and maybe inform each other by doing that. But, for example, on paper, is there an argument to be made that we have better come to know the cosmos because of a parallel quest to better know our hearts? 
that's sort of a poetic statement, but I also mean it like scientifically. And I would argue that it's true. And so here's an unexpected connection is that advancements in cardiology helped us advance our knowledge of stars and the cosmos. And that doesn't seem intuitive or obvious at all. But through the invention of the waveform as a data set of mm. sensitive vibrations, whether it's a two inches under your chest or uh, you know, two million light years away, they both arrive to us as pulsations. And that data needs to be captured and visualized and then analyzed. In fact, it was the need to understand each other's hearts that produced the innovation of creating the concept of the pulse wave that was then used for so many other scientific pursuits as well. I love finding unexpected connections like that. I was actually a biology major before I turned to art, and it never once occurred to me not to bring the science along with me. So mm. I, maybe I should frame that as well, that um, I don't hold you know, the age-old tension between the humanities and sciences. In fact, I think it's a huge mistake to hold <laughs> these suspicions yeah. uh, between our fields. In fact, I don't see how we're going to move forward and solve the problems of the future without the reconciliation necessary between these modes of thinking. One of the conceits of this podcast is like, how would you explain things to extraterrestrials? And so I have to, I mean, I want to ask, how would you explain visual art to an extraterrestrial? But also you have made visual art with the express purpose of communicating with extraterrestrials. So start with the first question. How would you explain the general medium from the most ancient cave paintings to, you know, whatever the most modern cutting edge version of it is, how would you explain what we're doing, how we do this to an extraterrestrial? Oh, goodness. Uh, <laughs> you're right. It, I think about it a lot. And now, and, now, and now to summarize it quickly, I feel... You're like, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> yeah. The SETI scientist who is in the business of thinking about this very problem, tell me this remarkable thing about his definition of intelligence. He, he needs sort of three boxes checked. One, an intelligence that has imagined and proven there's such a thing as a cosmos. Mm. The second one's crucial to me because it relates to art. You've pondered your place in it, more specifically, your loneliness within <gasps> it. Oh, my God. And third, you've built the equipment and conceptual thinking to find out. The second part is so important to me and it relates to art because I do feel, and I think an alien might already know this as well, if they're in the business of looking too, whatever loneliness looks like in an experiential way, it seems as if if you're looking into the night sky and, and making an effort to find each other, the driving force is something like loneliness or melancholy or curiosity about one's place in a, something much bigger than the space you're occupying. I often tell people that I wake up every day, I make signs and symbols, mm -hmm. I invest them with meaning, and I send them into a world with no guarantee anyone will find them. That's that's the problem of SETI <laughs> as well. And I and I do feel there's a there's a core commonality between SETI and the process of art. I really do. <laughs> and I think that there's something so fascinating about that parallel between the the interpersonal loneliness and the the planetary loneliness if we were to come across somebody else from out there how would we communicate with them and what our little humble offering might be to them i want to use the language of gifts it's important to frame it as gifts to me um, and bring along all the intention and nuanced emotional uh, meaning that comes along when you frame something as a gift. It's important to me to start there. That is in such contrast to pop cultural notions of first contact as most of us 
can imagine or have seen, you know, a lot of explosions. It, a lot of explosions, and you know the. The day of contact comes, and what do we do? We send our generals out. We don't send our Yoko Onos out, uh, and we should. And I, I'm annoyed that the conversation is so dominated by one way of thinking about intentions ac- across these uh, distances. I get it. I understand. Fear, Fear is a good place, you know, for, for to start in the unknown. I guess it's good, and at least evolutionary speaking. It, it's, it's been helpful. Admitted, yeah, it's been helpful. At times, yeah. But to your last point, too, about the irony of saying we're lonely creatures when we're surrounded by diversity of life here, the little twist that I always like to add here is that I have this game. Any question I ever ask, I just add off-planet to the end of my question and then see what happens about the question. The important work we've done to overcome all kinds of lonelinesses on our planet, even though we're filled with mistakes— in communication and properly empathizing with each other. We have so much room for improvement. But once you take these questions off planet, it just gets weird, different. And I I just like the little twist it adds there. Keeping with that idea, what does it mean to, to gift something off planet? In the debates around SETI about first contact and what would we say in response, I really believe that objects, the exchange of objects, holds an interesting pathway of communication as opposed to uh, a radio wave or a beam of light. There's something about holding an object, a delicate object, and if people see, can see images of my show online, you'll see what I mean. These are incredibly delicate objects that suggest the way one might hold it, which is with intention and care. Mm. I want the object to imply a type of bodily behavior of intention and care, and that that is translated in the, in the handover as well in these objects. You know, the objects are made of all kinds of things that have meaning as far as why am I using this color or this seashell. But structurally, the object has a delicacy to it that's important to me. I'm trying to think of nonverbal cues to sort of bypass other ways we might not understand each other through language. That can, can we give bodily cues that... We mean this with attention and care, and that our bodies are reflecting that by the handover. And so objects, and as an artist invested in materials and objects, there's a whole other realm of possible meaning to convey when you use objects uh, rather than a light wave, for example. And the objects in your show are so otherworldly. I mean, they're so obviously... Needless to say, they are made from ingredients found on Earth, Um, but they are so otherworldly. They're so evocative of a much more hopeful idea of what interplanetary friendship, I guess you'd say, could be. So looking at these objects that would be, you know, that are these suggestions of what we might gift to an extraterrestrial, looking at these beautiful gold jewelry-like waveforms of human hearts under all these varied uh, different experiences. I mean, it evokes so much emotion as we're going through the show and like gasping and like nearly crying when you're giving me the background of all these, oh, the umbilical cord. I mean, there's so many things that are evoke so much emotion. And I just keep thinking about like, if you had to explain art to someone who had no context, you know, specifically visual art and you can have these visual objects that like evoke these emotions these chemical reactions in our brains and our bodies but then this art is about those emotions being evoked it seems like this circular beautiful poetic <laughs> paradox um that it almost it's like a round and round we yeah, go what that's like good. A, it, uh, <laughs> that's good no one's quite pointed out pointed it out that way but it's true i'm both commenting on the human quest to understand our emotional states with new imaging technology, but also new poetic interpretations of, you know, reading our behavior. So the show is actually, you're right, it's very meta. It's about that very history. Very meta, very meta. (laughs) It's about that very history while also hoping the knowledge of that history then evokes those similar emotions in someone. I love that. Back to the golden record and that recording on board, 
it is doing something similar. You know, your mother recorded those physiological signals of her body, specifically the electricity, uh, hoping something might be out there that would then take that reading, embrace it through whatever methods they have, mm. um, such that empathy or lived experience or one's inner sub subjectivity is transferable across great distance and time uh, back into their their knowledge and subjectivity. I mean, essentially, I'm describing empathy, <laughs> yeah. which is such a, it's right there in the title of my show. That's how important it is. So empathy, I guess, is cir circular in that sense, too. You know, it's like we're counting on a constant feedback loop, loop between each other that, and we're constantly updating, constantly refining, do, am I reading this person the right way? Mm. Is their mood changed? Um, you know, to live, to, to bring someone inside yourself so completely that you feel as one, this, this you know, romantic goal of connection between humans uh, is, is a bit circular because then the other person now reads back in the same thing. Uh, so I do hope the show is doing that. When someone asks you, you know, what are you worrying about <laughs> creatures on other planets when we got so many problems back home here on this planet, um, what do you say to them? Mm -hmm. I say that uh, SETI has pushed me harder than any other topic I've ever encountered on my capacity to empathize with my fellow humans in the here and now. So if art is about making these connections, drawing these connections, like you said, connecting dots of things that seem unrelated but are profoundly braided together in some philosophical way or some historic way or, and making connections between one another. Like, does that go all the way back? Like, just, you know, the handprints on the caves, you know, um, the earliest markings that we've made as a species. Like, do you think that was about connection from the very beginning? I do. And I'm happy you would open the door to this because, <laughs> because one of my other, you know, the passions as an artist is to do my best to retrace the history of creativity as a behavior on our planet. Mm. And for me, the cave walls, big, big moment. Yeah. <laughs> of, you, you, you've got to give it. Got to yeah. give it. But there's one that's less known that really, really gets me. And it's it's the first time we've, or the earliest evidence we've found of not only burial sites, yeah. but the bodies being adorned with, yes. with in particular, seashell necklaces. Yeah. The reason I'm so drawn to this is that, you know, I wonder is, and I, you know, part of my argument about art is that there, there's a deep connection between the recognition of loneliness and loss and grief mm. as the reason for innovation and creativity, that we make things to express our grief to ourselves yeah. and to others and that that provokes new innovations of creativity. So it's not intuitive oh, yeah. to understand that that the experience of loss and how that's evolved on the planet coincides with innovations of cre in creativity. Oh my God, I deeply, deeply connect to that. I mean, obviously I'm very interested in rituals and I think that, I mean, what calls out more for a ritual than the death of someone you love. It's just begs for some way of acknowledging it rather than just walking away. Mm -hmm. And I think that like, you're absolutely right that that is such a, I couldn't agree more. So there's a cave wall, but just to finish this one yeah. thought about the seashells, many of these bodies have been found with hundreds to thousands of tiny seashells strung into a necklace. Yeah. But when you look at these seashells, tiny, fragile things that are held between your index finger and your thumb, like that small. And when you look at the perforation needed to, that had to be made to string them, knowing the blunt tools available at the time, it's, again, we're making a leap here, but it's reasonable to imagine what did it take to spend time to not break that seashell and slowly circle in one tiny spot, like less than a centimeter. These are very small perforations. Just circle, 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 until you break through the seashell without breaking the whole seashell with a blunt piece of flint. When I look at that and I see hundreds to thousands of shells on one body, 
that have been adorned with this act. That's worth pondering as far as the role of art and the role of its connection to loss. Like, why was this loss such that it would inspire this behavior in someone in a time when, you know, energy allotments were (laughs) crucial, safety considerations had to come in play. And the focus was just to live through the day. Yes. And yet they did it. And the evidence is there. And I, I am so moved by things like that because I feel that I'm part of that lineage. I'm on, I'm doing my perforations, <laughs> slow, thoughtful, attentive perforations propelled by loss so that I can properly honor those I've lost. But just as I have and others have found those seashells in those bodies, I'm also signaling to the future. I think art does this beautifully. I have this motto, which is, if you remember, I'll remember. Mm. It's just it's a moral code about relationships that we are each responsible to remember each other as we move forward. And we leave evidence behind for the future to find, to say, we did that for the people before us. Will you, are you going to do it right. for us? Right. And um, it's a question. So when I see a seashell necklace like that, that's a question being presented to me, which is, oh, you did that for your your loved ones what do I owe to that? And what do I owe to my loved ones and you know, other loved ones in the future that people will have? So I feel that art beautifully allows for that connection through time, through the objects we leave behind. My next guest is professor of art history at Harvard, Jennifer Roberts, who is currently collaborating on a book with Dario about the Voyager record. I think we make art because we're creatures that wake up in the cosmos with the consciousness, but we're trapped uh, in these small bags of flesh that we call our bodies, and we're trapped in the dark with this brain that's stuck inside of a skull. We can't perceive anything beyond just a narrow band of electromagnetic radiation. We can't see beyond the horizon. We can't see even like one nanosecond into the future or into the past. We can't see into each other. We can't see into each other's minds and into each other's bodies. And so we're just surrounded by this sense that there's something bigger out there that we can't reach. And we hate this. <laughs> we want to find a way beyond those those boundaries. And there's lots of ways that human culture does that. Science is one. But um, artists, I think, in particular, are people who have an especially difficult time struggling with the fact that there's something else out there beyond the material world that we can immediately access with our senses. And so, you know, human culture tries to make sense of this. We try to make sense of the universe by creating culture and language and traditions. And um, our brains try to make models of the world and, and predict the world around us. But those traditions tend to ossify. They tend to become constraints in themselves. They become habitual And art is a way of making sure that we're always sort of pushing beyond the constraints, both that we have set, physically set, and the constraints that we set for for ourselves. So um, art is a way, I think, of sort of sensing something beyond and trying to reach it using our senses and using the materials around us. Um, So it's kind of a custom, but it's also, it's a space that humans keep open to hold, uh, to keep access open to the to the transcendent, to something beyond ourselves. Yeah, I mean the way you describe it, it's it's so parallel to religion. I mean, I often ask this on the show: How would you explain X to an extraterrestrial? So, how would you explain yeah. visual art to an extraterrestrial? But specifically in this case, to an extraterrestrial with different senses than ours, without yeah. the sense of vision. How would you, if you could communicate, right. how would you communicate it? Right. No, it's such a great, it's such a great question. I love thinking about how aliens would uh, understand our art. Um, and in fact, it's actually something that I assign my, my students to think about in my art history classes at Harvard. So when I send them to the museum and I say, you're going to go look at this painting, 
and I want you to write a paper about it eventually, but I want you to start by sitting in front of that painting. I tell them to sit there for three hours and pretend that they're an alien that has come down to the planet and has no knowledge of our culture, doesn't fully understand um, the sort of sensory world that we live in. What, what would you do? What would you see? How would you look at it from that perspective? And that's a great way to get them to shake them out of their own customary understanding of what art might be and, and how it might be understood. But I love um, that assignment. Oh, my <laughs> God, that is so up my alley. One of the things that art does is it gives us an experience of our own world that is akin to the way an alien would experience it. It's a constant yes. practice of defamiliarization, of taking things that we've yes. learned to take for granted, that we have sort of habitual ideas about, and just blowing them out of the water, in essence, giving us, uh, giving them a kind of sense of, um, of wonder and mystery. Um, and strangeness, because actually everything around us is, in fact, incredibly strange. And when we don't see that, it's just because of our habits. So anyway, I mean, more. could not I mean, agree I more. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, yeah, and your podcast, I think, is a perfect example of a work of art in this sense, because it is about taking things that we think we understand and looking at them from this alien perspective. Like, how, how would an alien think about this? But you know, art, especially in the whole history of human culture, is so big that it's almost just synonymous with, with humanity itself. It's really hard to put a boundary around on it. So it'll, it would kind of depend on where the aliens landed and when, right? They could land in a cave 17,000 years ago, and they have one idea of what art is. They could land in China in the year 800, and it's a different thing. The Great Northern Plains in the 19th century is something else. In the Met looking at 19th century French paintings, it's something else entirely. Some things are two-dimensional, some are three-dimensional, some are four-dimensional, some are hollow, some are heavy, some are buried with bodies, you know, some are used to interrupt arrows on the battlefield, and some are used to sort of hold sugar on your table. So what is an art object? It's, it's actually something that not even humans have been able to figure out. I mean, there are humans called analytic philosophers whose job is to figure out and to find what art is, and they haven't been able to do it yet. Um, and if they did, then an artist would turn around and make something that violated that definition <laughs> almost right. instantly, right? So in some ways, what art is about is sort of keeping, uh, preventing definitions from taking hold. It's, it's holding a space open for the undefinable in itself. But anyway, let's just say that, um, that some aliens come down to the Met. The idea of the Met, of a public museum building that's filled with precious objects that the public can come and see. This is this is an idea of art and what you do with art that's not very old. It didn't exist before the 1700s. But they try to figure out what art is by looking at the objects in there. There's some paintings, there's sculptures, but then there's also armor and there's also some ceramic vessels. And then there's like my daughter's favorite room in the Met, there's musical instruments. Mm. <laughs> what is it? What is art? Um, but I think that what they would end up having to do is really th to look at what humans are doing in that space to sort of try to figure out what what art is. Um, you know, they would wander through the galleries, maybe in there, maybe they have a cloaking device and they're just sort of floating around with the humans in the space. They're looking at these weird objects in cases. Maybe they scan them with their material analyzers and they say, okay, this is 58%, you know, this mineral and 63% of that or what have you. They would actually add up to 100%. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> So they would they would do a material analysis and they'd say, okay, it's made of these materials, but they can't figure out what these materials mean. They're puzzled over these objects. They seem very special. The humans really seem to care about them, but the aliens can't figure out what the meaning of these objects is. They can't figure out what their function is. They can't figure out why they seem to be so important. They can't match the material configuration with some greater meaning. But then what they would notice is that the humans standing around next to them looking at the objects have a very similar attitude towards what they're looking at. The humans are also looking transfixed, um, but also really puzzled. The humans don't seem to have figured these objects out either. So maybe one way of thinking about how we would talk about what art means to aliens would simply be to say that um, art is kind of the way that, that we become alien to ourselves. I love that. 
know, it's the way we look at objects in the same way we would look at an alien artifact. Like if we just found, if we just were to find some artifact on Mars and bring it back to Earth and put it in a museum, we would treat it in a way that's sort of similar to the way we treat our own art objects as something that's just phenomenal and special and transcendent and shows us a glimpse of something beyond our own capabilities. It's a sort of portal to what's beyond us and that we don't understand. So we recognize the alienness in ourselves through art objects. I feel like art is the closest thing to sort of alien communication that we have, actually. I'm fascinated with this idea that you can see something, you know, if we're just talking about visual art, although this applies to like music and other art forms, you know, it goes into your brain, through your eyes, and then you have an emotion, some chemical is released, or an idea, and that like, stuff happens inside your brain from seeing shapes and colors in specific ways, and like, how bizarre that is, that it evokes something inside you that you sort of can't control. Exactly. Maybe one way to think about that is the difference between sort of an art object and maybe a scientific experiment, right? I actually believe that the sciences and the arts are very, very similar and in fact share almost everything uh, with each other's. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so interested in Dario's work, um, because he too is really tapping into these shared impulses between scientists and artists. Both scientists and artists are interested in detecting things and building instruments that allow us to move beyond our our perspectives, right? So one of the things I like to say is that a work of art is like a space telescope because it's this really complicated custom arrangement of materials that's precisely engineered. And if it works, it completely changes the way you think about yes. the universe, yes. right? It changes well, the way you see everything, you know? Yeah. Like the only difference I think is that with science, that result occurs, we perceive something outside of our senses, like the web telescope, for example, is yeah. seeing in the infrared. I mean, we, we have no immediate sensory access to these revelations that it's providing. So those have to be translated back into something we can see, and then they go back into our bodies. Um like right. art is about, going, yeah, they're both about going out and getting something from beyond us and then stuffing it back in, right? <laughs> stuffing it back into us. Whereas scientists, I think, tend to be nervous about all of the emotional things that happen when these things from the beyond go back into our bodies. Artists are really relying on that movement of uh, confounding us at the emotional level, at the bodily level, as well as the intellectual level. Art keeps knowledge elastic because it's always open. Like the work of art can never be exhausted by a formula or by a label. Um, It's always open because it changes every minute. It changes every time it's seen by a different person. You brought up the web telescope. When those images come back, they're just jaw dropping. What does it say about us that our brains evolved to have these really strong reactions to something like that, but also like a flower and a sunset? We have these brains that are borderline addicted to pattern recognition. You know, we're constantly searching for it and finding patterns, finding patterns where there are patterns and where there are not patterns. What does the pleasure that we get from what we consider beautiful and the pleasure that we get from finding patterns say about us and our art? Well, clearly, pattern recognition is what's also driving science. Um, I think it's one of the things, it's, it's driving both science and art. We're looking for and we're able to detect little vibrations in the world, right? Little patterns, little signals that are coming at us uh, from outside of the known and because we we are looking for that, we want to that that seems significant to us. That's what sort of pushes us to follow that. The anthropologist Alfred Gell in the mid twentieth century wrote about art in its broadest sense as a kind of trap, um, and he talked about ornament in particular as a sort of trap for the mind and the body. It was something that would compel people toward it, slow them down, make them try to figure it out. Mm. Um, so pattern not just a pattern that we can't understand, but a pattern we can sense, but we can't quite fully grasp um, is something that traps us. 
as humans. And in many ways, I think you could think of art objects as little traps for time and emotion and discovery, ways of forcing us out of our habits and chasing after something that is too complex for us to be able to fully decipher, but that we know is somehow significant. You mentioned cave paintings. What is the earliest evidence we have of art? And what do we understand about that as a turning point for our species? There are many different theories of how art begins and where you would draw that line and where you're talking about art. But one of the things to keep in mind is that it's really not until two or 300 years ago that the idea of art and the fine arts and the visual arts gets differentiated from Mm. what we would call craft and from science so and from technology so techne was the greeks um, term for this which really stood for all kinds of making and making special so that would include both painting and sculpture but it would also include cooking or you know engraving armor anything that um, humans put special attention into the crafting uh, of some experience or some object. So the minute that a prehistoric Homo sapiens or even earlier, you know, picks up a shell and begins to modify it in such a way that doesn't have necessarily a direct functional meaning, but indicates some some kind of making special of that object, of recognizing some pattern in that object and Um, augmenting it, perhaps, Um, working with those materials to make something that's different, that has a different sensibility to it, like the Lascaux Caves, for example, and the Hall of the Bulls. Those caves are maybe 17,000 years old. And those are actually a great example of what I said earlier about how we're born into consciousness and we're stuck in our dark skull. Those paintings are in the pitch dark. They're not hanging in a museum to be looked at. They're all about creating something light and moving and alive and part of the beyond in the inner surface of some dark rock cave. They're so sophisticated as works of evocation, and we're not exactly sure what they were for, possibly as dreams of success in the hunt in the future, possibly meant to actually influence the behavior of animals, possibly they're just like documentary records of some great hunt that happened in the past, but either way, they're all about picturing something that isn't right there in the present. It isn't part of your experience right there in the cave, you're evoking something that is beyond you. In some ways they're the first films um, because they're really built, they're they're made as, they're made to have a kind of animation. They're seen with torches, so they seem to be moving in the flickering of the light. Um, And there's a really careful use of the actual shape of the cave walls to evoke the animals. It's not like a flat surface the way we would paint something now. It's sort of between sculpture and and painting. I love thinking about the inner surface of that wall as being like the surface of the known, right? This is the limit between what we can perceive with our bodies at any given moment and everything that we long for outside of that. And that distinction, that, that limit, that threshold is really what art is all about. You know, in Dario's film, for example, you may remember that one of the main themes of that film is the problem of the unobservable universe that we find ourselves in, in the cosmos. That there is, given that we live in this cosmos that is expanding at an accelerating rate, there is a limit out there. There are stars and God knows how much cosmos beyond it that we will never, ever know about because it's flying away from us faster than the speed of light. And there are stars at the edge of that that are going over, they're going over the limit and we'll never, ever be able to access them again. You know, and that's the kind of limit that Dario is interested in in talking about. This is like an absolute limit. We'll never know about these things, but 
that film is about the power of art to help us imagine that. And then to fold that mystery back into the way we live our lives every day, then it becomes a basis for ethics, a basis for um, changing the way we live our lives. We have to adjust our entire existence based on these revelations, right? Not just our, not just our minds, right? Yes. I love the use of the word revelation about scientific understanding. I really relate to that. And I I love this idea of sort of the moment that we start doing things for form over function or not even over function, but in addition to function um, being this turning point. And it makes me wonder about other species. I mean, surely there are, I don't know, I would have to ask like an ornithologist but like the way a bird ma- makes a nest is it purely function like there maybe is some some form but then if the form is all the things that animals ourselves included do to attract a mate is that form or function no it gets really hard to d- distinguish between form and function even the most functionless piece of art does have a function uh, and that is to break us out of our functional point of view, right? So, I mean, when I like to think about art as the custom, it's the custom that prevents us from being trapped in our customs. So that is so that it always has that function. And that is a real function. It really does things, you know? And the other thing is that like a work of art, if it affects you on an aesthetic level, on an emotional level, it really does change you. It's not a passive thing, you know, art changes the mind, literally, it literally forces your brain to make new connections, to reestablish its its contact with the world. Um, so works works of art do have absolutely have function. The question of other species is is a fascinating one, and of course, it's the same question that we would have about do aliens make art, right? right. Um, it is, uh, I think, one of the really most interesting areas as we move forward in science and the arts is to think about like interspecies communication how do we how can we recognize these kinds of of impulses in animals as as well as alien other extraterrestrial species i don't think there's any clear way to draw a line between different kinds of species or at least i don't know how to do it it's hard to imagine that there's nothing like this creation of specialness in say dolphins right well and then like whale songs you know there's so many things that uh seem at least from the vantage point of you know our very Mm human-centric worldview to be parallel in other species and then one can only imagine beyond beyond the planet i don't think that looking for art in other species should be about taking our metropolitan museum of art view of art and and looking for it in animals. I think it's more about looking at what animals do and changing our understanding of what art is, what it is in the first place, based on what they do. So what do you see as the future of art? Where are we going from here? What will the next few hundred years bring? I can project forward and give you some ideas, but I would do so with the full knowledge that uh, I would probably be wrong <laughs> because, in fact, just the other day I was I was having a conversation with some students. A student had just written a dissertation about certain trends in art in the late 1960s, where artists were suddenly really interested in in computer systems analysis and systems thinking and cybernetics and feedback loops and all these computational kind of dematerialized computational art. So this is these are, artists are trying not to make art objects and making instead art that functions like a computer. And they really thought this was the future of art. Everyone's going to be making uh, these sort of system conceptual art projects. But actually right now, if you look at what contemporary art is about, like what's what's the contemporary art that's getting all the attention? It actually tends to be painting and sculpture and a lot of craft like everyone's weaving right now so it seems like we've gone backwards instead of into this into the world that we thought we'd be in in 1969 clearly we're gonna have to struggle with the ai revolution where we're gonna have to think about what art can do for us 
and why. The whole question of offloading our art activity onto computers and AI systems means that we're gonna have to think about what we lose as humans when that happens. And I think in some ways it's gonna make us think about what is the value to us as organic beings of going through these processes of invention and creation and reaching beyond ourselves. Is that really something that we wanna hand over um, and take outside of ourselves? What gives you hope about what art can do for the future? of our species? What gives you hope about where we will go from here and the way that art can take us to a better place? My great hope and optimism, and this is one of the reasons that I am working with Dario and I'm so interested in his work, and I'm also so interested in, you know, your mom's work and the golden record and cosmology and astronomy, is that, you know, we are entering an even more accelerated age of uh, sort of transformative scientific knowledge. Everything from AI to microbiology to definitely in astrophysics and astronomy and the way we understand our relationship to the cosmos. And these are truly transformative events that we're all confronting. In less than 10 years, we could have a sample back from Mars that indicates that there might once have been fossilized microbial life there, right? So, like, it's it's not far off that we could have some of these species-changing revelations about the space beyond uh, the Earth. And with all of those revelations come all kinds of cultural disruptions and ethical responsibilities and you know are we going to be ready for this as a as a species are we going to be able to process all of this down in the very core of our being and are we going to be able to change the way we think and work and treat each other and love each other and make art Are we going to be able to change all that without art? And I don't think we are. I think that if we just take the science in and we're just looking at all these math equations, we literally won't be able to process what's happening around us. Art gives us a way of taking these revelations into ourselves and changing ourselves to match this new world that we're going to be inhabiting. It's not just about ethics, it's also about kind of joy and wonder. It's about really knowing what we've got. My parents, Carl Sagan and Andrianne, taught me to love questions. When I was small and had endless queries about the nature of life on Earth, they entertained them joyfully, thrilled when I asked hard ones. They taught me to look for answers, seemingly never tiring of the endless questions small children ask. But they didn't just help me find answers, they helped me find more questions. The origin of this podcast can probably be traced to my early childhood, when my parents would pose philosophical questions to me about why we do things the way we do them, teaching me to re-examine my ideas of what was normal and what was strange. Sometimes my dad would even pretend to be an extraterrestrial. He had such a silly side, perhaps not always evident in a lecture hall or on TV. He would ask me about human culture and I, sometimes hysterically laughing, sometimes genuinely flummoxed by how to answer, learned to begin asking myself the same kinds of questions. I was still little and did not yet understand the brilliance of my parents' work. The grand act of hope the Voyager records were, how they fell in love, collecting the music and messages that will someday perhaps be the last representatives of our little planet. 
my parents did not divide the world into art versus science. These two realms were overlapping, intertwined, dependent on one another, better together. Their work braids the best of both into one sacred pursuit, a pathway to deeper understanding of our place in this strange and wonderful universe. This cosmic perspective also reframed all humans, all earthlings, as more alike than it can sometimes feel. We have so much more in common with one another than we ever would with anyone we might happen upon from another world. Down here on the surface of this planet, our differences, cultures and languages, customs and beliefs seem insurmountable sometimes. But the farther we zoom out, the more indistinguishable we are from one another. The borders disappear. And we can celebrate this one small world we share, honor it, and find the beauty in one another. Something to think about next time something here on Earth strikes us as uh, a little alien. Thank you so much to my guests today, Dario Robletto. If you're in Chicago, please see his show at the Block Museum at Northwestern. It is spectacular. And to Jennifer Roberts, professor of art history at Harvard, thank you both so much. And thank you so much to my listeners. I'm so grateful to you for joining me for 14 episodes this season. It's been such a joy. And thank you to my producer, Dale McGowan, who makes me sound linear and takes out all the likes. (laughs) Our theme music is by Evgeny Klemenko. Additional music in this episode by Spear Fisher and Blue Dot Sessions. Strange Customs is a production of Only Sky Media. Visit us online at onlysky.media slash strangecustoms. Join us next season for more Strange Customs. Strange Customs.